Dave said, in our Uncertain series right now, we're exploring some of the bigger questions that we might have or have had or have wrestled with throughout our lives, whether you're a Christian uh, for a long time or whether you are just exploring Christianity. And these questions, I've got to say, I'm loving this series because I think these questions that we're asking are important questions, are questions that we should wrestle with and consider. And even, like I said, if we've been a Christian for a long time and we, we kind of know what is going on with the answers to some of these questions, they're good for us to work through and continue to think about. You've probably asked things like, oh, do I need to consider other religions? Or, you know, can I trust the Bible? Is the Bible actually what it claims to be? Or um, you remember what Dan Patterson spoke about a couple of weeks ago. Has science disproved God altogether? And so asking these questions, whether you are a new Christian, exploring Christianity, or a long-term Christian, is a good thing for us. And one of the things I want to say that I took out of uh, Dan's talk was the fact that we have all been given a mind and an intellect to use and we should be be faithful to God in in using that and answering and exploring these questions. And so we're going to continue to do that today and the question we're going to ask is actually, I think, a pretty tough one in many regards. But I also think it's a really, really important question for us to consider in this day and this age in a world where uh, so much is about about feeling and experience and, and what we go through, our question this morning is this. How can a loving God allow evil? I probably don't need to go into too much detail when it comes to suffering because we've all had some sort of experience, but let's just do a really quick broad snapshot of what suffering looks like. If we take a big step out we can probably say that we've all observed or experienced something that we would call not good or we would call bad or possibly even evil in nature. We only need to look at what's happening in Ukraine at the moment to see the suffering that is being caused there. Um, We only need to look back into history to consider the gas chambers of the Third Reich that killed two and a half million Jews to consider suffering. Or what about the the hulls of the slave ships uh, that transported 12.5 million Africans uh, as slaves across the Atlantic Ocean and into America? If we zoom closer to home here in Australia, here's a couple of news headlines from the last week. Bodies of father and son killed in Blue Mountains landslide recovered after police operation. People left homeless after northern New South Wales floods say they have fallen through the cracks. Racism, allegations and party infighting distract from the government's campaign message. If we take another step closer, uh, when we learn of someone who's, who's gone through an illness or is going through a serious illness, it seems so wrong. When we hear about things like suicide or a child that has been abused, there is something that does not sit right with us when we hear of that. We hear about a tragedy of of a car accident, maybe, that claims the lives of a young family. There is something that's not right. And every single day, we are faced with the reality that suffering does exist in our world, that evil and pain is a very real thing. There's a Barna poll that asked a cross-section of adults a, a question, and it was, the question was this. They said, if you could ask God only one question and you knew 
but knew that he would give you an answer, what would it be? You can probably guess what the response was or something along the lines of it. The top response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? You see, with pain and suffering, we run into a very real problem. C.S. Lewis, he calls it the problem of pain. Follow me here if you can. This is what he says in describing it. He says, if God were good, he would make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain as he describes it. Let's keep going and again, stay with me if you can or at least take away part of what this guy is saying. This is Epicurus, an ancient Greek philosopher. Here's how he describes it. He says, excuse me, either God wants to abolish evil and he cannot, or he can, but he doesn't want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to, but he cannot, then he's impotent. If he can, but he does not want to, he is wicked. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then how come there is evil in this world? Now, up front, the logic here, I think it actually seems to, in some degree, to some degree, make sense. Evil exists, suffering's real, and it seems wrong in our world, and it's a bad thing. And if we know that our God is a good and loving God, how is it that he can then allow evil to happen? This is the question we're going to be looking at today. We're going to follow a line of thought. We're going to ask a series of questions, and hopefully by the end of it, we've wrestled with it to a degree where we can have some understanding as to what is going on, the bigger picture here. But I want to be up front with you this morning. I want to acknowledge that this is a difficult question for us to navigate. Um, And the last thing I think we want to do is try and reduce the very real pain and and experience of suffering that we go through to, to some sort of head knowledge. And so with that in mind, I'd love for us to pray before we begin this morning and then we'll get into it. So can we do that together? Heavenly Father... We thank you for the minds you've given us, and we ask now, as we explore this question, how could a good God allow evil, that you would be the one illuminating our hearts and our minds, Holy Spirit. Be the one with us as we think and process through this, in Jesus' mighty name, amen. The Christian story, it does not begin with a world in chaos, does it? It begins with a world that is actually made right. In Genesis 1.31, we see that God saw all that he had made and he said it was disastrous. No, he said it was very good, didn't he? He said it was very good. His creation was in order and it was good. And part of God's good design was to create humans. Not robots, however. Humans that were free to be able to choose to love him. He, could, he, he wanted to create this meaningful world that allowed for deep and meaningful relationships. When I asked my wife many moons ago to marry me, what feels like many moons ago, um, I, uh, I could have forced her um, you know, under threats or even you know, I could have gone so far as saying the threat of death to say, you know, on our wedding day, you need to say these vows, you need to say them or else. 
Now, if that had happened, I'm pretty sure that all the witnesses who were there would have been able to say, there's something wrong with those particular marriage vows. Both Dave and Cherie, they're not freely choosing to love each other in that moment. And why is something wrong there? Because we recognise that for love, real love to have any meaning, then we need to be free to choose to say those words to each other, don't we? And so God chose to create a world where humans were free to love each other. But in doing so, we're also free to do the opposite, to not love each other, which is the very definition of evil. And Genesis tells us that the whole earth was then under human dominion and care. Adam and Eve were keepers of the garden. They were commanded to fill the earth and subdue or rule over the earth. And so they had this opportunity to either obey or disobey God. And then we fast forward one chapter in the Bible, right at the start, Genesis 2, 16, 17. God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, but if you eat the fruit from this one tree, you will surely die. And in disobeying God and in eating from the fruit of that tree, creation suffered the effects of human sin. And thus we became damaged by evil. And so one of the consequences of this damage is a a creation that has now become disordered. God's good design for us became distorted and we went against the moral grain of the universe. And you know what it's like, if you run your fingers against the grain of of something, you are going to get splinters, aren't you? And so Adam and Eve are banished from the garden where they were shielded from suffering and they went out and in leaving Eden they entered a distorted world, one that was, made them susceptible to disease and to death and to decay and pain and suffering. And so this morning, if you think that because God is good, therefore he shouldn't allow evil, then what you're actually doing is arguing against humans having free choice or free will. What does this freedom mean for us? Well, it does mean, like I said, we can choose evil. We can choose to inflict harm or pain or suffering or incite fear and dominance on others. Or we can choose to love and care and support others. But you cannot have true freedom of choice if you can only choose good but not evil. And this, I think, is where Epicurus, the the Greek philosopher, this is where his argument does not stand up because he assumes that an all-powerful God should be able to create this meaningful world where free humans only ever freely choose to love him. But this is just not possible. There are certain things that defy God's nature and character that he cannot do. He is holy. God cannot sin. And so evil exists... And we have the the freedom to be able to choose good or evil in this world. But what about those who are innocent? What about people who have never done anything wrong or haven't done anything wrong and yet they suffer in very real ways? Does God need to answer for their sufferings? And is suffering a result of some of their wrongdoing or something that they have done? You know, the Bible, it never backs away from addressing this topic of suffering. There are numerous accounts throughout the Old Testament in in books like Jeremiah and in the Psalms. This morning, we're going to have a look at the character of Job, which comes from the book of Job. And Job, it says he was a guy who was blameless and he was upright. 
And what we see with Job is, is an example of a classic good guy who has bad things happen to him. But we're not just talking about one or two bad things with Job here. This guy basically has his entire life just ripped apart. His ten children die from his house collapsing. Uh, these enemy raiders come in and pillage all of his wealth and all of his goodness. Um, and then natural disaster comes and all, his fl- all these crops and his livestock gets destroyed. And then on top of all of that, his wife turns on him and mocks him and tells him, you need to renounce your faith in God, curse, him, curse God and die. But then Job's health begins to deteriorate and he gets all these disgusting blisters and skin sores that makes it really painful for him just to do anything at all. And what we see in the book of Job from chapters 3 through to 37 is this series of dialogues that happen between Job and his friends. His friends are typecast as these, these wise men, these people who basically make the argument for Job that, what, that you reap what you sow, that what Job is doing has got to be a consequence of something that he's done in the past. It's that classic cause and effect perspective that we often have in our world. In Hinduism, in Buddhism, it is called karma, the idea that you do something bad now, in the future, something bad is going to happen to you and that karma will catch up with you. And we know that sometimes uh, bad, thing, bad people do bad things and, and they suffer the consequences. But sometimes that's not the case, is it? Sometimes they get away with those bad things. And on the other hand, sometimes good people suffer bad consequences in life. That is the story of Job. And we're going to read from chapter 38. Because this whole time in chapters 3 to 37, Job's been crying out to God. He wants to have a meeting with God. He wants God to to meet with him and so he can talk this out. And we get to chapter 38 and here Job gets what he wants. So I invite you, if you've got your Bibles, open them up this morning. Uh, Job 38, it'll be on the screen, verses 1 through to 5. And this is what God has to say back to Job. So there's been all this dialogue that's happening up to this point in the book, and now God speaks. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Now, at first, we read those five verses, and if you're like me, you're thinking, well, this is a pretty harsh response coming from God right here for a guy who has just gone through a really, really bad situation. My first thought here is, where is your compassion, God? What's going on? But what God does in talking like this is immediately he changes the focus of the conversation that has been happening. The whole time Job's been asking God, meet with me because I want to know, why am I not being dealt with justly? Why is this suffering happening to me? All I've done is honour you. All I've done is done good by you And this is continuing to happen to me. What's going on? 
But in speaking, God actually changes the conversation. It's a paradigm shift that happens here. The perspective now that God wants Job to see is one that looks at how God himself orders his creation. In essence, what God does here is he shows Job that our human view of justice and suffering is actually small and narrow. And that God's perspective... His governance of the world, it has goals that we just cannot fathom. It has means that we cannot discern from where we are located in the universe. And ultimately, it boils down to this. God's ways are so much higher than our ways. You might remember that verse, or that verse might come to mind. Isaiah 55 verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Uh, last year, our, our daughter Mesa, she broke her arm. And she, she did it in the classic way that, that many five-year-olds break their arms. She fell off the Monkey bars, right? And when she did it at the time, there she is. I don't think I can look at the photo because it makes my heart hurt too much. Um, But when she did it, she complained and and we supported her and cared for her and loved her. And and she complained about her arm and we made sure she was really comfortable and we kept a close eye on it. Anyway, um, a couple of weeks went by. Now, you you guys are going to think that that we're not very very good parents here, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. A couple of weeks went by, and I looked at Mesa's arm one day, and the swelling had gone down to a point, and I looked at it, and I'm like, there's something not quite right with that picture. It was out of place. And so I said to my wife, Cherie, we need to go to the hospital. We need to go right now. And so we took little Mesa to the hospital, and, um, and that, whole, that whole ordeal was, was quite traumatic for her as, as the doctors placed different contraptions on her and, and, and worked out what they were going to do as far as her arm was concerned. It was uh, quite a traumatic experience. And, uh, and so we got to a point where we thought things were going to be okay, and Mesa was settled. And then the doctors came out to us and they told us the news. They said, Dave and Cherie, we're going to have to re-break your daughter's arm. This is two weeks after the, the arm had already begun to heal and they were going to have to re-break it there and then. And our hearts just sunk for our little girl in that moment. This was so hard for, for us to deal with. We didn't want her to go through that pain, but in seeing the bigger picture, we knew that if she was to have her arm broken again, it could be reset and it could heal in a way that it couldn't otherwise. Without going through that suffering, without going through that pain, without going through that ordeal, she didn't have the full chance to be able to heal. And in that moment, there was no way that we could describe and explain to our little girl, you know, this is going to happen and then you are going to have to hold your arm at a right angle for the next couple of months and you're going to have this cast on there and you're going to have to put a plastic bag on it every day and you're going to have to shower with it and it's going to get itchy and you're going to want to scratch it and put pens and bits of Lego down there and do all that kind of stuff. There's no way she could have understood all of that in the moment. But this is something that we saw the bigger perspective in. And so if that is true for a flawed and finite being like myself, then how much more is this true for an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God who sees and knows all things? 
You know, God, he didn't just know the answers to the questions that he asked Job. He's God. He knows every detail of his creation intimately. He knows the number of hairs on your very head. Our God is beyond space. He's beyond time. He can see through the corridors of time itself. And because God can see and he knows all, he alone, God alone, is the only one who is in a position to know how to intervene. He alone is the only one who is in a position to know when to intervene, to be able to secure the best outcome for us when it comes to suffering. So when it does come to this question of how could a loving God allow evil, God has reason for allowing it to happen. We simply are unaware of those reasons. And that's frustrating for us. We like to be in control. We like to know what is happening in our lives. If you're a planner, you've got those dates and those times and those locations on your calendar and things make sense in that construct. But when we don't know what's going on and we feel out of control, it can be a pretty different situation for us, can't it? Job, we see here in this example, he trusted God through his suffering. And the story actually ends with Job acknowledging his limitations. He acknowledges who he is in light of who God is. And the story ends with Job having his fortunes restored by God. See, when it comes to suffering in our own lives, when it comes to experiencing bad and evil things, the good news is that there is an answer for us. God's response to suffering is Jesus. To quote our guest speaker from just a couple of weeks ago, Dan Patterson, he says this, he says that Jesus is God's response to our every heart cry. You know, Jesus doesn't just give us the reasons why we bring our suffering before God and, and trust him with it. He actually gives us the ability to find meaning, to find hope, to find healing through our suffering. But how? How does he do this? Well, this is again where we need to just have a little bit of a look at the nature and the character of God a bit further. Because if God is love, then surely he cares about me when I suffer or experience bad things, right? And we can see this personified through the example of the person of Jesus when he was here on earth. The Gospels have many, many accounts of the deep, meaningful, full, and at times gut-wrenching compassion that Jesus displayed while he was living here on earth 2,000 years ago. Here's just a couple. Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and he healed their sick. Mark 1, 41, then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Matthew 9.36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And then we have an account of one of Jesus' very dear and very close friends, Lazarus. Lazarus gets very, very, very sick to the point where he dies. Jesus finds out this news that his dear friend is sick. 
He gathers his disciples, he goes to the funeral, and there we see his compassion on full display for everyone. John 11, 32 to 36, it says the following. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Think about that thought. He's deeply moved and he's troubled in that moment from their response. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Here we have this beautiful picture as a grown Jewish man, a renowned rabbi, and he's breaking down and he's weeping in front of everyone. You see, Jesus doesn't just observe our pain and suffering from a distance and do nothing about it. He feels deeply for you. He cares about what we are going through. He knows the details of our situations and our experiences. He sees your struggles. But not only that, he doesn't just see them, he understands and he is actually moved by your suffering. Jesus deeply empathizes with you. Next week is Easter, one of the most important dates on the Christian calendar. And on Good Friday, we come together, we pause and we intentionally remember the sacrifice that Jesus went through. We intentionally go through that process of understanding some of those details, the suffering he took, the sins of the world placed on his shoulders, enduring the cross, scorning its shame. See, the compassion that Jesus gives, it's not shallow, it is the real deal. But it's, he doesn't just know our present suffering. Jesus doesn't just know what's happening right here and right now and what each one of us goes through. He's our future hope in that suffering. In Revelation 21 verse 4, it says that God, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know, what a great promise that Jesus says that one day evil's going to be completely stamped out. It's going to be completely finished. There won't be any more pain. There won't be any more suffering. This is the hope that we have to look forward to, my friends. This is a great hope that we have. And this future hope actually helps us to look at our present sufferings and evil in a different light. Because the promise of no more death and evil, suffering is not the final word because of that. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to Romans, the Romans in chapter 8, that he considers that the present sufferings that he was going through are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, when we look at this life, this time that we have, in comparison to all of eternity, all the suffering that we endure and all the evil that we see, Paul here, he says that that isn't even worth bringing into comparison with God's glory in us. Now that's good news, right? That's good news for us. That our present pain will one day be dramatically outweighed in light of eternity. 
Paul says our light and momentary afflictions and troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all in 2 Corinthians 4.17. Now that is putting our pain into perspective. So this morning you can take heart. Whatever it is that you've gone through in the past, whatever it is that you're going through right now, and whatever it is that you will go through in the future, that evil, that suffering, those bad things, they do not have the final say. God has the final say. And we look to Jesus and we know that he'll return to earth one day. He is our living hope. And so even when we don't have all of the answers as to why we're suffering and as to why God allows evil to happen, even as we cry out to God for the injustice that we see in our world today, the things that are going on that just are not fair, that just are not right, our hearts that break for those things, the cross of Christ, it shouts above it all. It shouts that you are loved. Jesus has suffered for you and he cares about what you're going through and he wants you to bring it before him and entrust that suffering over to him. I want to invite the musicians to come forward. So how do we respond today? Well, the amazing thing about our God is that he will use suffering in many different ways. God can use suffering to bring people together, to bring out the best in them. I mean, we only need to look at what happened with the floods in the last couple of months to see the way people have cared for each other, supported and loved each other. God's given you and I a choice in our lives. We can choose how we respond. That choice is ours to make. This morning you might be going through something, something major in terms of suffering. Maybe you have a sickness or, or a physical health and you're living with real and ongoing pain, and, and that's hard for, for others to understand. That is your experience. Maybe there's a relationship that has been pain from words or, or actions that have been made to you, or maybe you've made some of those yourself. Maybe you've been unjustly treated. There's been a situation where something uh, or someone has taken advantage of you and done something hurtful. Maybe you read the news feed and you see injustice, you see suffering around you, or you know someone who is who's suffering deeply and you, you feel for them. You have a deep sense. Or maybe you're at the other end of the scale, and I want to speak to you at the moment. If you're going through something where when you compare it in light to others, you think, oh, I'm going to discount the pain because that's nothing compared to what that person is going through. Well, I want to say to you that God sees your pain too. Just because someone else has a different, seemingly bigger thing happening in their life, that doesn't mean that what you are going through does not have any worth. It doesn't mean that it does not have significance. Our suffering gives us the chance to trust our God, the opportunity to reach out to Him, receive His grace, receive His love, and look to him as our future hope, knowing that one day there will be no pain and suffering. We're going to pray in a minute. And as a part of this, I want to invite you to respond. And I invite you just where you're sitting now to join me as we start this prayer. 
If you just want to, where you're sitting right now, just close your hands, close your eyes, and just make a fist where you are right now. Let's close our eyes and pray. God, there's no easy answers when it comes to suffering. It's not always something that we can explain, Father. And with our hands closed, those who have closed their hands in this moment, we want to recognise the pain we've gone through. We want to recognise the suffering that maybe we are dealing with right now. We want to recognise the injustice that we see all around us. When it comes to the evil in the world, you see it, Lord. And when it comes to our own personal pain, you see that too, Father. And so, God, right in this moment now, as we open our fists, we entrust our suffering into your hands. We give it over and we reach out to you. We place our hope to you with open hands our hope in you. Please help us through what we are going through. We invite you to be our healing. We look to you as our source of strength. You are the one that we can rely on. We look to you with bursting hope, with hearts that anticipate that promise that you will come and wipe every tear away and there will be no more suffering or pain one day. You are the greatest hope that we have in this lifetime, King Jesus. We thank you that even though the sorrow that we have may last for the night, it's joy that comes in the morning. May we keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, our living hope. Amen.